You're listening to the Odds and Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Prem. Duck fans out there, I want to remind you real quick that you can subscribe to DuckTerritory.com for $1 for your first month. Get inside scoop on the Oregon Ducks, in instant opinions, analysis. Uh, you get to read all the content across the entire 24-7 sports network. And then once you go back to regular pricing, which is $9.95 per month, you get CBS All Access for free with your membership. That's 10,000 shows, live sports, movies on demand, commercial free. All through CBS All Access. Now, Eric, today is a Wednesday, which means it's a mailbag. We we scour the internet on DuckTerritory.com. We scour on Twitter. We ask for Oregon's fan base to send us what they want to know about. What is that that burning question you've got that you need an answer to? We've got eight questions today. I feel like a couple of them are going to kind of maybe tie into one overlaying theme, and that's with the Oregon football program, but... Uh, wide range of topics for today's show. Yeah, I really like it, and I like where we're starting here. This is a good question from at Robbie Parnes. Forgive the recency bias, but I'm wondering who you might think the best U of O athlete of all time might be across all sports. Even in the last 12 years, you could probably say Ashton Eaton, Marcus Mariota, Sabrina Inescu, Peyton Pritchard, all of whom are arguably the best in their respective sports. Who do you got? I, I like this question, Matt. We've kind of done something similar. A lot of this stuff reflecting it's back. It's like Mount recently. Rushmore type stuff. Yeah, because, well, and it makes sense for doing this because you know we, we just happen to be in an era here where Oregon women's basketball with Sabrina Ionescu, I think, undoubtedly the best women's player in, in program history. Peyton Pritchard. We've been talking about the argument that maybe he deserves in the discussion for best male player. Um, we didn't mention Justin Herbert here, but he's certainly one of the best quarterbacks in school history. So this year has been special in terms of the individual athlete. I think that's important to acknowledge. Um, I was thinking about this for, for a little bit this morning, um, Matt, and uh, I think Steve Prefontaine's name needs to be mentioned and probably pretty prominently here. I know from maybe like if you're looking at it from an individual accomplishments perspective, and I know he was a track and field, and, and for some people maybe that isn't one of the primary sports, but sure. he he paved the way in terms of a lot of attention to the University of Oregon. You think about what he meant on a, on a, a large national stage, international stage as an Olympian. Um, what he meant during that time period, I think he is, needs to at least be acknowledged. But what I will say is I think you're getting to the point here where if the Oregon women's basketball team wins a championship this year, Sabrina has a really strong case um, for for an honor like that. I mean, that would be the one thing that she has that separates her from somebody, you know, from Marcus Mariota or uh, Peyton Pritchard. You know, Ashton Eaton's a different situation there because he obviously won an, you know, so a number of individual national championships in track and field and a number of, uh, I think, a couple of at least maybe team national championships. But I, I think if Sabrina were to be able to win a national championship this year with everything she's accomplished, uh, she would have a really strong argument to be considered across all sports, maybe the GOAT. I don't know, Matt. Do, do you have a strong inkling one way or the other? Do you have a name you like the most right now? I, I think you know names like Ashton Eaton, Steve Prefontaine, they need to be mentioned. Um, we're going to hear a lot about Ronnie Lee. We're going to hear a lot about um, Dan Fouts, and um, down the down the road they go. And, and I'll be honest, I'm, I'm 33, and I vaguely remember Terrell Brandon playing. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I I vaguely remember you know Tony Graziani playing at quarterback for the Ducks. I was not there for Madrashad and. Um, I was certainly not there for Steve Prefontaine, and you know those guys certainly accomplished a ton. And there's a large fan base out there that's going to say that they are the 
the Mount Rushmore. And maybe they are, but I think you also have to look at them in just different eras of athletics. Like the athletes in the sixties are nowhere near the athlete historically for the most part of the athlete in the 2020s. Like they're just not, they're different playing fields uh, and, and whatnot. I, I think let's just go back to maybe the last 40 years, 50 years. I, I certainly think Sabrina is going to be up there uh, for one of the greatest athletes of all time. Just because, I mean, if they win a national championship again, if she wins the player of the year award again for a second straight time, she'll be the most accomplished player from an accolade standpoint and from a winning standpoint at Oregon. Um, yeah. In terms of the major awards, I mean, maybe, maybe a, a C. Prefontaine or maybe an Ashton Eaton, but I, I think you probably have to have Ashton Eaton or Steve Prefontaine, but I don't know if you can have both. Uh, if, if you're going to take four. Um, certainly believe Sabrina will be up there in terms of the discussion. I think Marcus Mariota will be up there in terms of the oh, discussion. Yeah. I'm not quite sure about Peyton Pritchard. Maybe he may be the best athlete, uh, or he may be the best player to come through the Oregon basketball program. You could maybe make that argument. Um, but I don't know if you can make the argument that he's the best athlete to come through the entire athletic department. Yeah, I was just thinking about another way of looking at this question about like who who would you say has like the biggest personal brand of those four that he mentioned there? And I think it's interesting because Marcus Mariota won a Heisman Trophy. That's a much bigger sport, obviously, than women's basketball. But I do think like Sabrina and, and Mariota are probably the two most recognizable Oregon athletes, at least right now, that are continuing to play either collegiately or professionally. Um, it says a ton about what how special a player I think Sabrina is. And we're recording this, you know, a, a little bit after Monday's game where she sets all these right. records and is, is you know, the focal point, not just in college women's basketball, but, like, nationally, like, stories about her on the front page of ESPN, her speech is everywhere at the uh, Kobe and Gigi Bryant memorial service. So her brand is obviously, like, on full display right now, so it is kind of a recency bias, heat of the moment sort of thing, but it's really remarkable the amount of attention she has gotten in a sport which at least traditionally doesn't receive this type of attention. Like, it makes sense if you have a Heisman Trophy winning quarterback that a lot of people across the country know who he is and appreciate his accomplishments, but that's not always the case um, for a women's basketball player, and I think that's what really makes her so special and significant. And I do think it's going to be something where we're really appreciating her career right now, but I think a couple years, maybe five years down the line here, and depending upon how much success she has in the WNBA, I think we're going to be even more impressed with kind of what her career was and what she means for Oregon sports. All right, second question from at Eric160634. How much a lot of numbers again. A ton of numbers here. We always got a lot of numbers. I also like that there's an Eric asking a question. That might be our first Eric asked question on the podcast. So thanks, Eric. Other Eric's, please join in. Uh, you know, he spells Eric. Eric differently than you do. Yeah, it's an E R I C. He's kind of he's yeah he's the lamer of the two Eric options. I guess three Eric options. Some people use both the C and the K, but nobody likes those types of Eric's. Um, but this question, I like this one here. I think from. We we're just talking about Peyton Pritchard, but this is another Pritchard question. How much did Peyton Pritchard improve his chances of becoming Oregon's all-time leading scorer? Um, Eric obviously referencing in part that 38-point performance against Arizona over the weekend, which is you know about twice his per-game average. Uh, I ran a little bit of numbers here. He's now at 1,866 points, 
Ron Lee's all-time record is 2,085. That's 219 points. Now, uh, the moving target here is how many games Oregon gets in either the Pac-12 or the NCAA tournament. And they have three games guaranteed in the regular season, and I guess they have one game in each tournament, so that's five games. If they play five games, he has to average like 40 points per game. So that's 44 points. Yeah, that's not totally, totally doable. Very, very unlikely, especially if they're losing all like a couple of those games, and he's scoring 44. Um, but if they were to play, I, I, so I did the numbers here of like, okay, let's say they let's say that they played their three games in the regular season against Oregon State, Stanford, and Cal. And then they have three games in the Pac-12 tournament. Let's say they play in the conference championship game. Who cares if they win? And let's say they played three games in the NCAA tournament, so they're making it to the Sweet 16 this year. He'd need to average 24.3 points per game in that stretch, which is about five points above his season average, so not unthinkable, but kind of a stretch. If they were to make the Elite Eight, that number comes down to 21.9 points per game, which at that point you've got a pretty decent chance. And if they were to make the Final Four, he needs to average right around his current season average. So really, the, the, the math right there would be if, if Oregon can get the final hot four. and make the Final Four, it becomes a reality. But I think otherwise you're looking at him needing to put up some crazy stats. We just saw him score 38, so maybe it's not that inconceivable. Yeah, I think it's basically going to come down to how many games, how long does Oregon season play out? Like if 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 they somehow fall out of the top four in the conference in the conference race and then go on to win the conference and play four games there and then make the elite eight or make the final four, then it's going to happen. Um, if they don't fall out of the top four, win the whole thing or play all, you know, get to the championship game, get to the final four, there's a good chance it could happen. But I think that's the only way that we're going to see Peyton Pritchard get to that level where he's going to have to have his best level of basketball and the the ducks are going to have to play into April for them to have a chance to give Peyton Pritchard uh, the title. Doesn't, mean he can't do it. I mean, he just went for 38. I mean, what happens if he comes <laughs> right. out on Thursday night against the Beavers and drops 32? And then against Cal, uh, he he drops a team that's not very good. He drops another 30, and he goes for 30 points three straight games in a row. Um, all of a sudden then, you know, the, the likelihood of that drastically changes because he just made up a game in right. terms of what where he was at. Yeah, and that's how you have to look at it. We're, we're looking at this as if he's averaging 19-20 a game. If he is to score in the 30s on a regular basis uh, during a regular season conference tournament postseason run, you'd be looking at maybe he only needs eight or nine games. But I do think the reality is Oregon needs to play at least into that second weekend for him to have really any chance, unless he's just, like we said earlier, putting up incredible stats, which right. maybe that maybe happens. it happens. Maybe it takes it to that level. Maybe that's Maybe that's what this – season turns into is that was just the, the first of many huge games from Pritchard. But um, realistically, it feels like he's going to, yeah. the Ducks are going to need a deep run. Yeah. He needed, he needed to have a, a couple games in the thirties earlier on in the season um, to be able to get to where he's at now. But look, I never thought he was going to go for 38 on the road at Arizona before. And he did it. So, I mean, I, I I'm not going to come out here and say he's going to do it, but if Oregon has sustained success, it wouldn't surprise me. All right, I'm going to combine questions three and four, Matt. Sure. We're doing this on the fly, but I think it makes the most sense. Um, three and four, the first part from at Josh Harden underscore four. 
Well, we have rumors of Aaron Feld meeting with Alabama. Thoughts? And then the, the fourth question from at KMuir101. Feld is in a tremendous job, and the results speak for themselves. Are we paying him enough to keep him around? Between his mustache, getting results out of the players, and keeping Cristobal out of trouble on the sideline, I'd say he's irreplaceable. Um, <laughs> I, I, I like the fact that one of his selling points is his, is his facial hair. But, uh, you know, <laughs> what are you going to do? Um, that is a signature part of who he is um, right now, for sure. Uh, this is a timely question and an important one. Um, you know, I think the second question there did a good job of sort of establishing some of the things that Feld has represented at Oregon, but he, he really has changed this with that fourth quarter program, that weightlifting and uh, speed and, and, you know, strength training. He, he has really changed the body types of so many athletes at Oregon in the football program. And I think that's been really significant to this run. I just wrote something on the site. Uh, I think it was late last week about things that I was looking forward to seeing in the spring. And one of them was just how much Feld and his staff had transformed some of these, you know, previous true freshmen, now sophomores, and even some of these incoming freshmen, how much he's transformed their bodies. Because that's something we've certainly seen every offseason is a player comes in and maybe they were a little overweight and they come back and they're a little bit more felt or, or the opposite where they were a little bit thin and they come back 10, 15 pounds thicker. So um, he is a crucial part of this. Matt, what do you think about potential rumors with him in Alabama? Do you, are you buying into it? And, and what would that mean for Oregon if that does come together? Um, I, I go back to what I said about the Dante Williams thing um, and, and some of the notions that, other coaches could be hired away from Morgan. Like, I go back to Cristobal's track record. Like, yes, has Aaron Feld had a huge impact on this football program? Absolutely he has. There's no doubt about it. Um, he's, he's been instrumental in the development, the culture, uh, and, and just everything about Oregon's success. He's a key part. And I 100% expect Alabama to pick up the phone call. And, and call him and say, hey, are you interested? And I 100% expect Aaron Feld to consider it because he's from that area. His wife is from Alabama. Uh, you know, a lot, if, if Alabama's calling you, that, that's one of those programs you have to take the phone call and consider. Um, and, and so I, I 100% think that conversation will happen. Will he go? I don't know. But if he does go, Look at Cristobal's track record of who he's hired. What Duck fan needs to get away from this idea that every every guy on this staff is irreplaceable and that you can't find someone else that can do a quality job. Maybe you can't find someone that's 100% equal to what Aaron Feld is, but maybe you can find someone that's 98%, and that 98% is still 30% better than everybody else in the conference. And, you know, maybe Aaron Feld is, is the best strength coach in the country. And there's not another guy out there that's just as good as he is at what he does. But you can find a plethora of, of guys that are very similar. And to be honest with you, like, who knew the strength coach, you know, three of the strength coaches at Oregon's football program four years ago? Like, Yes, it's very important, and I'm not trying to devalue Aaron Feld's job, but I just feel like we, when when someone new steps into a role at Oregon, and ha- there's a lot of success behind that guy, everyone just instantly thinks he's he's irreplaceable. And I'm not and I'm not trying to say this as a negative towards Aaron Feld because he's made a huge impact. But yeah, and and his and his departure would hurt the program for sure. But 
look at the track record that Cristobal has in hiring guys and tell yourself, why can't he do it again at the strength coach level? Why can't there's someone out there? There's more than one person out there that can do a good job. And yes, he may not have the charisma that Aaron Feld has. And yes, he may not get one to one flip ratio of results that Aaron Feld had. But it's not like Aaron Feld's departure all of a sudden Oregon can't play football. Like that's just not going to happen. And so I don't, I, I, it bothers me, it tires me, and it's anno- it's annoying to me when every time a, a program like Alabama or a program like USC or Ohio State they have some kind of opening and everyone's instant reaction is, oh my God, are they going to come after X at Oregon and are they going to take him away? We're screwed if they take him away. Like that's small-minded program thinking and, and Oregon's past that level. Oregon is a destination job. And if, and if any position opens up, whether it's the strength coach, the, the head coach, the offensive coordinator, the defensive coordinator, a position coach, an analyst job, it doesn't matter. Whenever a position at, at, for the Oregon football program opens up, it's a hot commodity. People call everywhere trying to get an interview. Oregon will have no, they will have no shortage of, of options to, to replace Aaron Feld. And it's just finding the best one that's out there. If that happens. This has been what grinds my gears with Matt Prem. Matt taking some strong stances there. I love it. Um, <laughs> a couple of thoughts I just had here is like, uh, you're right. Like I, I, prior to Feld and the only strength coach I knew was the, was his predecessor. And that was basically just for bad reasons because of, because of what took place in that offseason under Willie Taggart where you had players being hospitalized and there were questions of the credentials of that individual. Um, and you know, so like this is, it's kind of unique that there's a strength coach that we have this much notoriety with, and he's done a good job of marketing himself. And another thing that stands out here is like, it's not like he came here as a ready-made person, you know, ready-made strength coach, which, you know, he came here after being an assistant director of strength at strength and conditioning at Georgia for three years. Um, And prior to that, he'd been the head strength coach at Northern Alabama for a little bit, but there's no reason Oregon can't bring in somebody who doesn't even necessarily have head strength coach, you know, coordinating history or experience and develop them. I mean, you know, like I said, Feld is somebody that kind of developed on the fly and obviously has gotten to a point here where, you know, we think he's doing a great job. The fact that Alabama loses its strength coach and, and they're looking at Aaron Feld tells you what they think of him. So exactly. um, you're right. You, you know, you're right. You know, it'll be interesting to see what happens here. This will be something to track. It's going to be significant if they do lose him, but um, it's not like they can't go out and find somebody who maybe doesn't even have the same experience that he has now. Um, and that person can't come in and do a really good job. All right, let's take a quick break. You're listening to the Austin Audible's podcast. All right, welcome back to the Austin Audible's podcast. I'm Matt Prem. Eric Scopel is with me as always. And one a quick reminder out there that if you aren't a subscriber to DuckTerritory.com, do that now. You can join for your first month for only $1. Inside scoop, expert analysis, read all the content across the 24-7 Sports Network. And then once your promo price kicks in uh, and you go to the regular pricing of $9.95 per month, you get CBS All Access for free, 10,000 shows, live movies, live sports shows, all of that commercial free on CBS All Access. So jump in on that now. All right, wrapping up the second half of the mailbag, we've got four more questions to go. 
Fifth question from at Nat Fod. With reports that NFL scouts are concerned about Troy Dye's size, could we see our star linebacker slide into the safety position in the NFL? Would it benefit him to try and do so? He was listed as a safety during his college recruiting. I think good questions there in terms of Troy Dye and um, NFL.com. Is he fast enough? And, and that, I think that's got to be the question. Is like he maybe he's a little undersized, but can he actually play the position at a high enough level? I was um I was looking through NFL.com. But Kevin Wade, our colleague, posted a story of just all the different NFL.com draft grades, and they gave Troy Dye a six point one nine, which basically indicates he's a special teams or NFL backup with the potential to develop into a starter. Um, the explanation says he's best suited probably to play inside, but because of his his weight, which is what Nat thought was getting at here, he, he might have to play outside linebacker in like a 4-3 defense. Um, I do think his his lack of size is a concern, and you're right. Does, is he fast enough to really go out and play safety at a high level? I, I'm not necessarily sure I saw that from him. I, I mean, I think he's kind of, in a weird way, like a little bit of a tweener in terms of like he's you know, 6'4", 230 pounds, which is a pretty good size athlete, but for the modern-day inside linebacker position, he's not big enough. And I don't necessarily know if I, I know, I know he's good in coverage. You know, he, he was predict, you know, he's productive in that area at Oregon and obviously made some plays both in, you know, in terms of tackling receivers, but also, you know, knocking down passes and intercepting passes. But I don't know if that's necessarily a big enough strength where I can say he's going to play safety professionally. And I think that's a significant transition to ask him to make. So I, I kind of wonder, I mean, I think it, it could go a couple different ways. He might work his butt off. He might get bigger, and maybe he is able to play inside, which is probably his best position. Or he might end up being somebody who's like just a third-down defensive player, uh, just in you know passing-specific situations, or even maybe just a special teams player. I don't know. It's kind of hard to see. Um, I think it's sometimes it's challenging to kind of differentiate the college production with a player like Troy Dye, who obviously goes down as one of Oregon's most productive linebackers, and what he would be as a professional player. Um, just given some of his physical limitations. I just, I, I think he's going to be a linebacker in college or in the NFL. Like I just trying to, trying to find a way to look at him and, and, and see him playing any other position. I mean, he was so dominant and so important and so productive at that linebacker spot. And I, and I, I get some guys have to move, but what's, what's the, I just have a hard time seeing it. I, I think he's going to, I think he's going to be drafted as a linebacker in the NFL. And as the NFL continues to to morph away to being a spread offense type league, yep. his value will continue to go up. We should mention that this week is the NFL draft combine. Sure. Uh, some dates here just for those who are interested in following coverage. We'll have. Uh, we'll be covering the event remotely, but Thursday and Friday we've got, or sorry, we have Thursday, we've got tight ends, quarterbacks, and wide receivers performing. That means we'll have Jacob Breland, Jawan Johnson, obviously Justin Herbert. Uh, Friday is offensive line specialists and running backs. That means you'll have Oregon's senior offensive line trio on that day. And then Saturday is when you'll see Troy die with the linebackers. Um, and that'll be a big day for him in terms of showing what he can potentially provide and maybe showing that he can play linebacker at a high level despite being undersized. I don't know, but we'll have a lot of coverage from the combine we have all week in terms of the lead-up to it. So uh, keep it on DuckTerritory.com in terms of following along with how some of these Oregon players perform at the combine. I will say 
It's been a while since we've had this many Oregon players performing in it. I think this is going to be a pretty exciting weekend in terms of just seeing the raw numbers of how they perform and then kind of reading what the reviews are and seeing if, if what we saw from some of these players translate in terms of NFL scouts uh, expectations, I guess, or, or uh, opinions of these players, because it's one thing for us to see them as college players. It's another to see what they are as NFL players. And, and this weekend will go a long way in determining that. Sixth question from at, at only here for sports next season. I feel will be like Sabrina's second season. The incoming freshmen will have more, or sorry, will have better and more experienced talent around them than Sabrina and Ruthie had. They won't be expected to carry the team right away. What do you guys think? Um, I'm kind of confused by this question. Go ahead. What what confuses you, Matt? Second season. What what is? I'm struggling to understand. Next season, I feel like will be Sabrina's second season. I think he's referring to the 2017-18 season, which was her and. Ruthie's sophomore season, they won the conference that year, went to the Elite Eight. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah. I was looking at it from, like, a Sabrina perspective and not an Oregon perspective. Yeah, no, I think he's talking, yeah, sorry that was unclear. But, yeah, for those listening, I, I think that uh, what the question is getting at is next season feels like it'll be a year where they're a step or two away from competing for a national championship but still good enough where they're making an Elite Eight run, possibly winning the conference. And I, I will say, I think... Oregon is really spe- this is a really special run what we're yeah. seeing here where Oregon is winning the conference outright three straight years. I know officially we can't say that until Friday, but I think we're all pretty confident they'll beat Washington or Washington State this weekend um, it's to, to do so. But this is something that's never happened before, and I, I put some of the significance of this on on Monday just of like coming into this run. Oregon had won two conference championships ever. Stanford had Stanford has won twenty four out of thirty five. <laughs> Conference championships, and I, I think the likelihood that is that next year's team is really competitive and really talented. I was, you know, kind of up on after the on Monday's game, thinking about some of these incoming recruits and watching their highlight packages and going, right. man, they are going to be super fun to watch. But also going that the conference is going to be really good next year, and there's going to be Stanford with basically everybody back, and UCLA brings a ton back, and Oregon State and Arizona are going to be really good. Arizona State's going to be really good. I, I think Oregon next year has a chance to win the conference, but if we're saying be hard. if the expectation is they're going to go 16-2 and two and make the Elite Eight, I think that's a lot to ask, especially of a group that's going to play a ton of players who have never been in those sort of circumstances before. I'm not trying to totally overlook it. I just don't want to sit here and go like, yeah, they've got this Fab Five recruiting class, best recruiting class in the country, and they bring back you know some, some really talented players that just haven't had big roles, and they're just going to roll through the conference and be awesome again. I, I, do, I think it's going to be some growing pains. I think it's going to be a really important year for the program, but I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily know if I agree with the, the comparison. I, I think it's going to be probably closer to a year where they go 14 and four, 13 and five in the conference, than one where they go 16 and two and and win it handily and, and then roll through the conference tournament and, and play uh, in the Elite Eight. I think that's maybe a little too much to ask for for next year's squad. It's it's going to be extremely difficult, and I think had Sabrina or not Sabrina had Satu decided to come back for sure. her her senior season, then everything at Oregon drastically changes for next year. I, they're probably the favorite to win the league. They're probably one of they're not probably the favorite, but they're probably one of the true contenders to win it all. Um, I still think those 
possibilities are out there for Oregon. It's just going to be a lot harder, and you're going to have to rely upon – there's two two ways of, of thinking of how Oregon gets back to a fourth straight Pac-12 championship and gets to a Final Four. Does a core group of Aaron Boley and Taylor Chavez, Jazz Shelley, and Sedona Prince – and let's just say those four. Is that four good enough and do they improve enough in the offseason to kind of carry Oregon and be the players that make you know that make that stir the drink essentially mm-hmm. for for the program and get them to the final four? Is that the four group is that is that four the, the the core group for you to get to a championship? And is that gonna be one of the best core fours in the country? Or the thinking is 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 there gonna be some combination of the core players that, are, that I just mentioned, and some of the five-star freshmen McDonald's All-Americans that are coming in, and can you rely upon two, three, four freshmen to be your best players and play at that high of a level? That's I think that one is a tall task. I think the first option is probably more likely, but it's probably also not as probable of being one of the best four you know quartets in the country. Yeah, I, not to dwell too much on here because we have a couple more questions, but I, I, I must say, I, I, sitting here and trying to project what next year's is going to be is both really fun because there are, like you said, some couple different possible outcomes of what this team looks like. It could be a team that is quote unquote veteran heavy, you know, in terms of sophomores and juniors and you got Bully as a senior and Lydia Giomi as a senior and those are focal points. Or it could be a team that's super young and really relies upon the true freshman. I mean, again, like I, like I said, I was, I, I was really hyped up, up after that uh, win over Stanford, and I was watching, you know, Oregon women's basketball recruiting highlights until like about 12 o'clock at night, and kind of going like, man, these are some really talented incoming freshmen, and you have to be really excited about both what they can provide and, and what that would mean from a depth perspective, and also like maybe these players are going to step in and be capable of being kind of like double-digit star players right away. It, it, you just never know, but the potential is certainly there, so. I think there's a lot of promise, a lot to be excited about. I think it's going to be a really fun off-season kind of figure, you know, hearing about which players are stepping up and kind of what the rotation might look like. I should note we have a story up on the site I posted shortly after Satsu announced he was going pro where I made a prediction of what Oregon's starting five is. I'm not going to say that prediction here because I want you to go read the article, but I'll just say this, that none of the true freshmen uh, were in my starting five in my prediction for 2020-21. So, Go check, take a look at that. It certainly feels a little premature to be looking that far ahead just because you still have a national championship run ahead of you. But if you are somebody who kind of likes to look ahead and think about the future with this program, um, there are certainly threads on Oregon or uh, on DuckTerritory.com that allow you to do so. Um, and so go ahead and check out my predictions for 2020-21. Uh, should be a fun season, but a long way to go. And I think we got to keep looking at this year's uh, national championship run that, that is still ahead of us potentially. All right, seventh question from at Drew Goley. Any updates on Oregon men's basketball recruiting? Matt, they do have one signee in the class. They have a little bit of room. Are you hearing that they're going to add anybody else, or kind of what's your expectation at the moment? Wait and see mode. I mean, there's literally a couple five stars that they're after. Um, You could argue for various degrees of interest that those players have in Oregon. I mean, they have Jalen Terry, who's a four-star point guard committed to Oregon. He hasn't signed yet, but he's going to sign in the spring. He's the 10th best player at his position, the second best player in the state of Michigan, 65th best player in the country. 
Now they've also got, you know, they're involved with a prospect like Zaire Williams, who's a five star. They're also involved with Jalen Green, who's a five star. Um, Jalen Green's probably going to go to Auburn or Memphis though. Zaire Williams kind of all over the place, you know, North Carolina, Stanford, Arizona, uh, Oregon, UCLA, USC. I mean, a lot of schools are involved with him there. I, I think what's more likely to happen is you have to remember they have Eugene Umari, Eric, Eric Williams and Luke were all redshirting right now. So they've got basically a four man <laughs> class already either redshirting or committed to Oregon. I think what's going to happen is they're either going to hit the junior college ranks kind of hard in the off in the spring and, and go after some guys that maybe emerge in the spring as some instant help. If that doesn't work, they'll maybe find a grad transfer. And if that doesn't work, they're going to go and find a, you know, a, a four year transfer, a guy that has to sit out and maybe have two or three years left of eligibility. I, I think that's what's going to happen in the spring for Oregon basketball because let's just assume that everybody that's on the roster with eligibility comes back. And I understand that's something that does not happen at Oregon all that often and across college basketball. Every, every year there's a transfer there. Every year there's uh, a guy that goes pro unexpectedly. Um, but let's just for a second here, best case scenario, assume everyone comes back. You have Infalo Dante at center. You have Francis Okoro at center. At power forward, you have Chandler Lawson. You have CJ Walker. You have Luke Wurr. At small forward, you have Eugene Umari. You have Eric Williams. At shooting guard, you have Crystal Warte. And you have Addison Patterson. And then at point guard, you have Will Richardson. And you have Jalen Terry. There's not a lot of spots left. There's not a lot of options left. I mean, I think... If I, I ran through it right there. I think Oregon has 11 guys. They have two, they have two spots open. And if, if, if you're a, a Zaire Williams, a five star, five best player in the country, small forward, and you look at Oregon and say, okay, I, I'm going to play power forward, small forward, and shooting guard in your system. Okay. Well, let's look at power forward. Well, you, you're bringing back CJ Walker. You're bringing back Chandler Lawson. You, you have a Luke Ware who's coming off a red shirt. You have a Eugene Umari who can also play the position. You've, you've played Chris Duarte some there. You played Addison Patterson there. That's six guys. I, I, I'm certainly going to be better than a majority of them, but they also need to play. I'm not going to play the 30 minutes that I'm expecting at power forward. Okay. Small forward. You've got Eugene Umari. You've got Chris Duarte. You've got Eric Williams. You've got Addison Patterson. Four guys that are playing that small forward spot. Okay. It, it's going to be difficult there. I'm better than some, but I'm difficult. Shooting guard, I'm going to play there, but is that my best position? Well, Chris Duarte's back. He's not coming off the floor. Addison Patterson's going to have a year's experience, and he'll, he'll certainly improve, but I'm probably a little bit better of a player than, than Addison Patterson. But nonetheless, the starter's still there. So I look at this and say, like, it's going to be difficult for them to go out and find a five-star guy like a, a Zaire Williamson or a Jalen Green. And that's why I think they're going to go find someone who is – going to be okay with redshirting a year because they're already kind of loaded at positions. I think if, if you want to get get somebody for next season, I wouldn't mind adding another center that can block shots, and I wouldn't mind adding another point guard. But outside of that, they've got a ton of guys on, on the roster that can play the wing positions, and, and it's going to be – I think they're going to find someone that's a redshirt candidate. 
All right, our last question on the show from at Duck en- Duck in Enemy Water. Looking at Oregon's football schedule this year, what do you think their trap game is? Their road schedule is pretty favorable this year with Cal coming off a bye and a few programs with new head coaches. Thoughts? Um, I should note, we have already written a story on DuckTerritory.com where myself, Matt, and Kevin all made selections for this year's trap game. Um, it's on the website. It's a DTU roundtable, a Duck Territory roundtable from January 18th that, that is titled DT Roundtable, the biggest trap games of the 2020 season. I will quickly run through my pick. Um, I'm not even sure if Matt remembers what his pick was, but I can remind him if he hasn't. Um, I, I went with Oregon against USC on November 7th. The thinking behind it being I think that Arizona State game is going to be super important, super pivotal, super uh, a game that it kind of catches everyone's eye based upon what happened last year. Obviously, Oregon beats Arizona State in Tempe. They're probably playing for a national championship rather than playing for a Rose Bowl. Or at least they're in the semifinals instead. Um, we, we remember what happened. I think that's a game where they're going to be really motivated. That USC game comes right before that Arizona State game. I could see that being a game where USC comes in with a ton of motivation given how dominant Oregon was over uh, the Trojans last year in Los Angeles. Um, so that was my pick that I made. I think there are a couple other games that are kind of challenging on the schedule. I think it's, a, again, I think it's a tough schedule, but my pick was Oregon USC on November 7th. Matt, do you remember what you picked here or do you need me to remind you? Hawaii. You did. He got it right. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. Uh, yeah, I, I just feel like the Rainbows, they won 10 games last season. I know the head coach left to be the head coach at Washington State, but Rainbows are, are a team that they run a funky offense. And if they get into a rhythm, they're really tough to stop. Even if Oregon has a loaded secondary like they do next season, um, it's smack dab after Ohio State. Um, yep. I just think you know the interest of that game is going to be a big factor, and I, I, it wouldn't surprise me if Ohio if if Hawaii plays a huge upset spoiler type of a game where it's it's closer than it should be late in the game. And our third, our other colleague Kevin Wade picked Oregon hosting Washington on October 3rd as his pick. And I think we were both at the time kind of confused on why that might be a trap game considering the significance of it. But I do think that is a game that's also super important. Tough schedule, fun schedule. I think a schedule that will challenge the Ducks. Um, and it would be very interesting to see how it all plays out this fall. All right, that's going to do it for us here on the Odds and Audible's Mailbag. Thank you for sending the questions in. It's been fun. I've enjoyed it. And I remind you... If you aren't a subscriber to DuckTerritory.com, do so today. You can get in for $1 for your first month, and after that it goes to $9.95 on Oregon. Content across the entire 24-7 Sports Network. And then when your regular pricing kicks in, you get CBS All Access for free, 10,000 shows, live sports, live movies, all of it on demand, all of it commercial free through CBS All Access, which comes free with your membership to DuckTerritory.com. So, Barry Scopel, you're listening, and myself, Matt Prem, you're listening to the Odds and Audible's podcast. We'll talk to you soon. Adios, amigos.